take your Bibles, if you will. Let's turn now to James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. I'll read for us our passage from God's Word and then pray a prayer of thanksgiving. James chapter 4, 1 through 10. Just picking up your Bible, it's to the right of Hebrews. If you can find that book, it's to the left of First and Second Peter. It's toward the back side of there, or the right side of your Bible, if you will. James chapter 4, 1 through 10. Hear now the reading of God's word. May he bless it. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray now together. Father, this is a weighty passage. This is a a day unlike many Sundays, but in the same way like every other Sunday where we take the word, your word, and we open it and we seek, Father, by your grace to hear from it. And yet today we look specifically in application to one specific area in our country, in our world, in our life. So call it, as we do each third Sunday of January, to the forefront. We drag it, kicking and screaming seemingly at times, into the light of Jesus Christ where there along with every other Sunday and along with every other sin, we recognize that the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ is completely sufficient to cover even this sin. Father, we pray that you would grant us grace. Lord, I would specifically ask that whether it's one or two, 20 or 40 people in here that have been a part of 
abortion in some way. And they have struggled and held, maybe quietly in the shadows, with the guilt and shame that is within them about this sin. And yet they find themselves here today. I would plead, Father, that you would use this word to bring them the relief they so desperately need. That they might walk out of here, maybe for the first time, seeing their sin in the economy of the work of Jesus Christ. There's no debt left to pay. There's no work to be done. But that Christ bore even that sin for them. Father, maybe there's someone here that's not been a part of that abortion. Maybe it's just that they're dealing with the weight of guilt over another sin. And we trust the word will do that work as well. Christ has been given to sinners. And we know we are just that. We thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for the time that you've provided for us now. Help us in the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The book of James, maybe uh, it has been a while, or if ever you have heard a sermon preached from uh, the book of James, it's akin to uh, Proverbs. In fact, many would say this is the New Testament Proverbs. Uh, Some struggle how to think about the book of James. Uh, There's little in the way of Paul's writings drawing out the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ in this book. Uh, There's much in the way of don't do this and you shouldn't have done that and you need to do this instead. It certainly brings upon us uh, the weight and recognition of what it means to follow Jesus Christ and what it means to fight against sin and the prevalence of such sin within our own hearts. It's, it's written to the believer. I'll say more about that here in a moment. But you'll notice how it begins. Chapter t- 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. In a sense, you could say the book of James is written to the Christian church. It's written to the church to help us understand how does one live by faith in a world where there is still sin and hearts that still are prone to wonder as we might sometimes sing about. And James draws out much within this book. And one of the themes he he works around in the first couple of chapters is this idea of speech. And there's plenty of other things, but I want to draw it out for you a bit. It's within the context of our passage. Notice chapter 3, 1 through 12. He's talking about the power of the tongue, the taming of the tongue. Your Bible might say as a heading for that chapter He draws down into verse 14 and he begins to articulate what that tongue can actually do. Notice, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. He's beginning to connect what is coming out of someone's mouth with where it is drawing from, if you will. The tongue is connected to the heart. So you'll see he 
He continues to draw this out, verse 16 of chapter 3. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And, and we could flow that back around to chapter 3 and we could say, where selfishness and jealousy and ambition exist, the wrong words come out. You could draw a chapter down and a little bit past our passage this morning. We're looking at just the first 10 verses. But notice the 11th verse of chapter 4. He sort of bookends this same idea with speech. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So we have to understand that even as he talks about quarrels and fights in this first verse, he's, he's wanting us to recognize that the heart has everything to do with what comes out of the mouth and if we're having quarrels and fights, meaning our tongue is not being tamed or right, we're maybe speaking evil against one another, we're cursing instead of blessing, verse 10, chapter 3, look to the heart. Deal with the source. In fact, I think you, you need to know, even as we study the first 10 verses here, that James knows his Bible well, you could say. He doesn't have the closed canon we have before us, but the scriptures that he did have written at that time, he knew very well. He's going to draw back to uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through 7. He's going to reference quite a bit in this book. He'll even reference it in these first 10 verses of chapter 4. He goes back to even Proverbs. He'll draw into Proverbs. Thus the connection between the New Testament Proverbs, if you will, James with the Old Testament Proverbs. He's drawing out, if you will, for the believer that to follow Christ in faith is to be wise in understanding the source of sin and to counteract by humbly, and submitting, humbly submitting and seeking God. He's going to draw that out toward the end of our uh, passage there in 6 through 10. We have to recognize, brothers and sisters, the power of God's grace. We'll draw this out here in a moment, but it can't help but be said even at the beginning here by way of introduction that you have to understand the grace of God. And even as I say that, I would have to say at the second in the second breath, and yet you can't fully understand the grace of God. It's too amazing. And yet it is God's grace that motivates and empowers us to turn from our selfish ways and walk humbly in pursuit of Him. It is God's grace that motivates and empowers us to turn from our selfish ways and walk humbly in pursuit of Him. How does James draw this out? Well, notice he starts with a question. This is point number one. I'm just taking two points. The first five verses and then the remaining six through ten. Point number one, the source of murder. Notice his questions. It's in the first verse there. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And I think it's a great question. And I think we like to answer that question quite a bit. It's habits, we might say. It's those old habits of mine. And if I can just discipline myself in this new year of January and 2020, I can 
remove some of the tension in my life because I'll have developed better habits. Maybe it's social constructs. That's oftentimes the answer. If I can just get away from the old friends and get with the new friends, the new friends will help me get away from all the old bad stuff that the old friends are involved with, and voila, there we are. I just need a new job. That's causing stress in my life. I just need more money. I just need a better education. If we could just take that young person that's in the low-income district of a certain city and we could somehow get them into a better education, then all the world's problems will be solved. No more quarrels and fights among us. We so wish. Look what James says. Actually, it's this. Second half of verse 2. It's your passions at war within you. Now, I'm not sure what translation you might be reading from this morning. What does that passion mean? The Greek word draws out a much stronger feeling. A lust, a sensual desire, uh, delight, a desire, meaning a strong desire, a delight that is so deep and innate within you. It, it, it's not just the, the passing along the, the certain aisle in the grocery store that you shouldn't ever pass when you're hungry and you think, oh man, that's looking really good. No, it's much deeper than that. It comes from your very inward being. It's something that you, in a guttural way, in just the, the, the core of your being, want. He's saying it's coming from your heart. Notice then the results. He's going to ask the question what he did. He's going to give the answer what he did. And then he's going to prove it. Let me give you, James says, let me just prove to you why what causes quarrels and fights is your heart, is the passions within you. Let me just prove it to you. And so he draws out three different things. Notice verse two and three. He does, you desire, you don't have. Here's the proof. Because you didn't get what you want, you murder. You covet, you want something in somebody else's life, somebody else has, you can't get it, so you fight and quarrel about it. You don't have something. You don't ask for something. When you do ask for it, you're asking completely wrongly. Why? It's not to glorify God with what you're desiring. It's for the satisfaction of your own passions, your own sinful desires. I think it's something like 36, 37 years ago, January 22nd was the first Sanctity of Life Sunday put in place by Ronald Reagan. And I've quoted it for six or seven years in a row and I'm going to quote it again. This is what he said on that day. We have been given the precious gift of human life, made more precious still by our births in or pilgrimages to a land of freedom. It is fitting then on the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade that struck down state anti-abortion laws that, reflect, that we reflect anew on these blessings and our corresponding responsibility to guard with care the lives and freedoms of even the weakest of our fellow human beings. January 22nd, 1973, 47 years ago, in a few days, was Roe v. Wade. James is making the case that's the stores. 
we would agree with him. The highest court of our land, in the case of Roe v. Wade, approving that a child in the womb, which up to that time might have been the safest place to be in the world, was not to be considered a human person and could be murdered. And the aftermath is only something the grace of God that the church can handle. The, the, the figures of abortion we have read, you've probably read them, you may read them this week, they're mind-blowing. You won't be able to understand them. I don't suggest you look away from them, but nor are you going to be able to comprehend them. There's no number that we've ever dealt with of such a size. But right along with that number is another number that is growing on a regular basis too that we can't comprehend. And it's the face of those who have been involved. And I don't speak of just women, I would speak of men as well. But the statistics say that one in three women will have an abortion. Uh, the statistics are strong that there's someone in here, if not quite a few of us, that have been involved in some way, some way, some place along the way. And this is not a day that you necessarily look forward to. In fact, your heart may be more breaking and heavy than it ever has been before. And I would just simply ask you, would you hold just for a few minutes because the word of God is the only thing, the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can possibly help you on these days. I can't say a thing to you. I can't send you to enough therapy. But the grace of God can help you. In fact, it can provide for you the ability to walk out life going forward not in shame, but actually in joy. Planned Parenthood, of which is the largest provider of abortion, it's a third plus of the providers of abortion in our country, is going to spend $45 million on the 2020 election cycle. $45 million. Two things you should note about that. One would be they're rich and our tax dollars have lined their pockets. And the other one is you don't spend that amount of money if you believe you're winning. God has been very gracious in the last many years. And every year that we go through this on the third Sunday of January, the numbers, the amount of abortions are going down. And that is something we should give God glory for. And yet at the same time, it's, it's the, the tensions are never higher. Planned Parenthood, they released their 2018-19 annual report. They performed the, the highest number of abortions in a single year for them this past year. And they received $616.8 million of taxpayer funding to do so. That's our country. January 3rd, at the same time, National Review, a new bill, quote, in the Massachusetts state legislature would permit women to obtain an abortion after 24 weeks of gestation if a doctor determines that, quote, the abortion is necessary to protect the patient's life or physical or mental health, close quote. And the complete other opposite end of the spectrum, January 17th, just a few days ago, a bill was put forward in the Indiana House of Representatives by a representative, Representative Kurt Nisley, proposing that abortion be considered murder at any stage of the pregnancy. It's on both sides of the aisle. Why is abortion such a hot debate? Why is it so inflammatory? 
Why are millions of dollars being spent by Planned Parenthood to elect the Democrat they desire to be the office of to be in the office of the presidency? And James gives us the answer: It isn't about women's health, rights, or choice. As Christians, anyone who's pro-life, we're calling upon the world to recognize God's authority over life and that they don't have the authority over life that they think they have, and that means war. When you tell someone, you can't do that, you tell me that. Come up to me after church one day and tell me, you can't do this this week. I'll go ballistic on you probably. How dare you tell me what I can and cannot do? And that's amplified in much greater dimension. What's the cause? There's the proof. What's the indictment? Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. You adulterous people. Why? Why does James say this? Well, to worship oneself or anything or anyone other than God is to be adulterous in Scripture. It's to love something or someone more than you are to love God. Remember I said that James likes to go back into the Gospels and here's one way he connects with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Drawing from that the principle of not being able to serve two masters, that's what he's saying here. You can't be a lover, you can't be a friend of the world and be a lover of God. James simply saying to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. That's what he says in verse 4. And then he draws out another place in Scripture. Verse 5. Or you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He's drawing from a number of passages. There's not one particular passage that, that states that he's clumping a number of passages here's a few of them for you exodus chapter 20 verse 5 you shall not bow down to them or serve them meaning other gods for i the lord your god am a jealous god exodus 34 14 for you shall worship no other god for the lord your god whose name is jealous is a jealous god Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And, and he combines that with the New Testament teaching that our bodies are not our own. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. So the God that is within us, the one true God that dwells within us, he yearns, he's jealous, he desires for our affections and our affections only. Meaning our affections are to be given him and to no one else. 2 Corinthians six sixteen. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God is jealous that we worship him and him alone. And yet, this is where the sermon has to shift because 
there, there's a dichotomy that's right before us. We, we have to stop and recognize that God's response to our sin, to our adulterous ways in front of him, our response when we do not fulfill that desire that he would have for us to worship him and him alone is, is completely foreign to us. We have no capability outside of Jesus Christ to understand how he responds to us. When you're jealous for the affections of another and they do not reciprocate such affections, what is your method? I know what my method is. Our method is verse two and three. We've already looked at that. We wrap back around. We don't have, so we fight and quarrel. We desire, so we murder. We, we just do this cyclical cycle. It's a sick cycle. That's not what God does. Look at verse six. Second half here. Point two, the hard and best way forward for sinners. The first one was the source of, of murder, the second point, the hard and best way forward for sinners. Who's James talking to? Is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Well, I would love to say he would be talking to unbelievers because that gives me a free pass. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking to believers. Everything he's saying is to Christians. How do we know this? Well, I won't give it to you all, but I've counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, at least twelve places up until chapter four and a few following where he's addressing my brothers. There's no doubt that Paul that, that excuse me, James is addressing Christians in this passage. It's amazing. It should be amazing to us that the Holy Spirit inspired James to write to Christians, and what did he write to them? That they need to more fully understand the grace of God that is more than their sin, including murder. He didn't stop and say, well, now you're Christian, so you get it. Let's just move forward on here. We've got evangelism to do. We've got some discipleship to get involved with. You've got to train and raise your kids. You need to go to church. And forget all that other stuff about Jesus and God and his grace. That happened at the cross. That happened to salvation. No, he's inspiring James to write. That Christians need to understand more about the amazing grace of God that covers all of our sin, including murder, including abortion. And yet, the way he frames it, it's also very clear that we won't truly understand this grace until we really see our sin and the effect that it has upon us. And so he takes us to a brutal understanding of the nature of our hearts murder quarrels fights that's yucky i've been thinking about this week in relation this passage in relation to training our children parents how we respond to our children tells them quite a bit about whether we believe them to be sinners or not and I say that even as in ringing in my head is the completely wrong response I had to one of my children this week. And I only mentioned one of them. We would all say we know our little children are sinners. Yes, I know little Billy is a sinner. Believe me, I know little Billy is a sinner. So little Billy comes to you one day and says, Mommy, 
I took this baseball card from the grocery store. How dare you? <laughs> we jump all down little Billy's throat. What on earth? We're marching you back. How could you do such a thing? And little Billy's thinking, I thought you knew I was a sinner. <laughs> We're not saying we should be flippant about sin. And certainly God is not. But nor should we be surprised by the sin within our children. We should be grieved by their sin. But it is when our children sin and how we respond to that sin that can have the strongest of effects on teaching our children our understanding of sin, consequences, grace, and repentance. Do your children know by how you respond that you recognize that they're depraved to their very core, that they're sinners, that what they do is sin, that you're grieved by that sin, but you didn't expect much different. And that you do know because of the gr grace of God and through Jesus Christ, they can walk out that sin. If your child comes to you confessing your sin, their sin, there's enough guilt already upon them. We don't need to, we don't need to make clear to them that they're absolutely horrendously wrong. I suggest if they don't have a guilt, we help them understanding it, but yelling and screaming at them isn't going to help. We have to understand that every one of us are sinners because we're all born from Adam. He is our federal head. It's not just that we sin and when we sin somewhere two, three, four, five years old, when we were cognizant of that sin and it was that specific sin that condemned us before God, no, we're born sinners. It's within our DNA. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter three. I'm gonna take us to two passages in Romans. Paul works this out splendidly, much better than I could. Your Bible may actually have the, same, the passage on the same page, but Romans chapter 3, 9 through 11, notice what he's drawing out here, that there's, there's no one, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, there's no one that's not in sin. Romans chapter 3, 9 through 11. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we, are, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, and no one seeks God. And that is for everyone, whether 99 or 9 seconds old, or 9 months to go yet in the womb. Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21 is going to continue to draw this idea out. Therefore, he says, notice how he's connecting sin with Adam and forgiveness through Christ. It's a long passage. Follow with me. Romans chapter 5, 12, following. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Long passage, let me say it clearly. Your federal head is Adam. Adam sinned, we all die. The grace of God comes, gives more grace than that sin, draws you, changes you, steals you, robs you, rescues you, use what you like, saves you, come under Jesus Christ, and all of this is taken by him, and all of him is now yours. See the picture he's drawing out? You're under Adam, you get all this. You're under Christ, you get all this. You get more grace and all forgiveness over here of every single sin. Over here, not that way. This is the gospel, that God gives more grace. That's what verse 6 says. If you're back over in James chapter 4, if not, I'm going there, you come with me. James chapter 4, he gives more grace. Gives more grace than what? Verse 6, more grace than all of your sin. He gives more grace through Christ to cover our sin more than we could ever sin. I, I just, you can't get this word any better than, than the way the Holy Spirit inspires it. Lays out all this nasty sin, but, stop, full stop, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Where does it say that? Again, it's a paraphrase of a number of different passages. Here's Psalm chapter, I think I actually have this wrong. I think it might be Proverbs. It's either Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 3. I have written down here Psalm 3. I don't think that's right. You can go check and recognize your pastor is not getting all his passages right. Be a good Brian. I think it's Proverbs 3, 34. Is it? Thank you. Toward the, it's Proverbs 3.34, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Isaiah 54.7-8, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. 
It is God's grace that motivates and empowers us to turn from our selfish ways and walk humbly in pursuit of him. We're going to sing it here in a minute. Amazing grace. Notice the line. We'll sing it. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." The more grace that God gives through Christ will actually cause us great fear. I am not like him. He is more loving, more holy, more caring than I can ever be. And that actually causes our hearts to fear. And yet, the song says, and yet grace my fears relieved. It balances us perfectly. Or another hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Where does one go from here? Where do you go from here in our sin? Well, God is very kind to draw out what we should do and that's in the remaining passages there in 7 through 10 and I would just note to you that he does care how you come before him my wife and I were up in a town north of here last night and we drove by a church and it said no rules just Jesus I thought actually there are gratefully there's just Jesus Another sign I read this week was, God doesn't care how you come. But yeah, he does. He cares a lot. You have to come through Christ, and he cares about the attitudes of our hearts when he comes, when we come before him. Notice what, notice what he shows us in seventh and following. What are we to do? Well, first of all, because of the grace, okay? There is the, there's the motivation. Because of the grace, And that grace then empowers us. What are we to do? Well, we're to submit to God. Meaning we're to crucify our own selfish desires. We're to put aside the things we want to do and we're we're to come humbly before God and say, no, not my way, but yours. We're to resist the devil. There's There's a practical application here in the sense of we are tempted in our sin to fall back into things that we would love to do. And we are in submission to God by his grace to say no. We're to draw near to God. You can't just stand over here and say no, 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 and no, and hope the devil runs away. No, you, 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 that's the defense. The offensive game is to move toward God. And it's not as if, notice how it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. It's not as if he's way far away and waiting for you to come. No, actually, he's there, but he would desire for you, for us to be seeking him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we see him in his closeness to us. And it's a promise. We will see him more clearly. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. What else are we supposed to do? Well, there's just the application here of changing our ways, cleansing our hands, purifying our hearts. We do so by the word of God, by his grace, by confession of sin. That's really the last portion there in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Remember I said he draws back to the, the Beatitudes. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
All of this, all of this equals, if you will, 6 through 10, humbling ourselves before God. That's what it looks like. There's a lot of grace here. Some would say, well, grace is in verse 6, but I don't see grace in 7 through 10. Well, if you have guilt over a sin, whether it's abortion or any other sin, and you're wanting to know how to relieve it, this is a, a gracious way God has provided for us to do so. Let me, just, let me just draw out one particular way. Look at verse 9. That doesn't look like a party. When we, when we pause and we recognize and we, we stop long enough from all of our running from our guilt and we allow the Holy Spirit to do His work of laying upon our hearts and minds the weight of our sin before God, that will be the response. Wretched mourn and weep. In chapter 5 of James, verse 16, he actually tells the church, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There is a lot of grace in, in that confession of going to a person. I'd, I'd be happy to talk with you. There are a number of godly men and women sitting here who would be happy to talk to you and, and hear that confession and, and cry with you and weep with you and mourn with you and then turn in that to see God and what he's done through Christ and then there is joy, unspeakable and full of glory, as Paul tells us. There is grace in the confession of sin. There is grace in the relationships of the church. And you have to do that by faith, because everything in you is going to say, if I say this, I'll always be the per person with neon green that walks in the church. Everybody will know I'm going to glow like a nuclear reactor. Everyone's going to look at me like, you horrible person. You sinned. You have to trust these things by faith. You have to follow God in faith. It is His ways. It is submitting to His ways that provides you the healing that you need. If you're here this morning and you're weighed down by your sin, even doing these things Unless you come first through Christ, these things won't work. You can cry over your sin all you like. It's probably a good thing. But it won't save you. You ultimately need Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and trust Christ. And not only will he save you, he will transform your heart to think about these things the way he does and to see them the way he sees them. God's grace covers, heals, redeems, restores the years that the locust has eaten. All of us have a past. Every one of us. Children, if you think there is a parent in here that doesn't have a past, they're lying to you or I'm lying to you. All of us have a past. All of us have done things we're ashamed of. And all of us are here because we believe that Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sin and we want to hear that again so that we can walk through the next six days of our life with joy, recognizing yet again that Christ took all of my sin upon him in the cross. So where does quarrels, where does murder, where does abortion come from? Where does any sin come? It comes from sinful hearts. 
And yet God gives more grace to cover our sin. And he provides us by his grace, himself, his love for us, that as we seek him, as we follow him in obedience, as we trust him in faith, there is so much grace, more than we could ever possibly comprehend, to cover and help and lift and strengthen that we might walk in a way that tells the world. A world that says you should be crushed. A world that says you shouldn't be able to get out of drugs and alcohol and whatever thing else that you're trying to remedy all that pain and weakness from, all that pain and guilt from. You can actually walk around and say, I believe that Jesus Christ paid for it all and I can walk Head held high? Yes, we can. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And I pray and trust that it does all that it needs to do for each individual heart that is here. Father, what a glory it is that Jesus Christ would have paid for all of our sin. And it is that remedy that is alone, that alone, that can help us whether we're involved or have been in abortion or whether we have been uh, involved in just another sin this week. Uh, a sin that is, that is not in any way lighter than abortion, may have less consequences, but still in rebellion to you. Father, I would pray and trust that your word, that your spirit, that songs we've sung, the word that's been preached, Maybe a conversation we'll have, a prayer that was offered will help those who are dealing with the guilt of their sin this morning lift their eyes to look to Jesus Christ and recognize the grace that is available to them. Thank you for our time. You are kind to us. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.